0: Two men who could not be any different. There, there's a question that I want to ask you. Uh, what are you known for? What are you known for? If, if somebody was going de- to describe you, how would they do so? How would, they, how would, they, how would you describe yourself? If you were going to describe yourself to somebody, what would you say to them? And there's, there's, there's not bad ways to describe myself. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a father. I'm, I'm a husband. Those are, those are the things that I'm known for. These men were known for a few things. Matthew was known as a tax collector. Simon the Zealot was known as a zealot, and it's part of his name. I mean, when you get labeled as a guy who runs around and just stabs people and run away, like, that—that that is, you are known for that. Like, that's part of your identity. And yet, these two guys become known as followers of Jesus. And there's this dramatic transformation that takes place. Allegiances shift. Passions and desires and, and, and what, what is important completely turns on its head. And the, the contrast of these two guys is probably the most stark of any two that are in the group of 12. And we know a whole lot more about Matthew than we know about Simon. But the cultural context and what was happening at this point in time in Israel is really, really significant to help us understand what, what, what they were trying to depict. And, and it was a, a few weeks ago, and trying to even preface the, 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 the starting point of where the gospel accounts emerge Uh, that we discussed how there would have been a 400-year period of silence, that Malachi had spoken, God had spoken through him, Malachi spoke the word of the Lord, and you had 400 years of silence. God was not revealing things through his prophets any longer. There was silence there. And during that course of time, the world was turned upside down through military conquests, through Alexander the Great's desire to have everybody just be Greek. And so there was even uh, oppressive regimes coming in, trying to just flatten cultural distinctions. We're going to Hellenize everybody. We're going to make everybody speak Greek. There's going to be no cultural distinctions anymore. And And then the Jews win a little bit of their freedom back. And then Rome comes in and occupies about six decades before Christ was born. And part of Rome's occupation included taxes. There was a couple different taxes that would have taken place in the Israel nation that Rome would have placed on them. One was a census tax. Luke two, in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Rome had that much power and influence. That the world was going to be taxed. Every the Kind of the known group of individuals there that were under Roman authority and control had to go be counted, had to pay tax. Now it's amazing how, how God moved in the heart of Caesar and stirred up even perhaps jealousy in his heart to get Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem to fulfill his word. I mean, God's God's at work in the midst of governments that oppose him and is doing things through them to accomplish his will. But there was a tax. That's one of the taxes that took place, a census tax. Then there was a much more common form of tax, which Matthew would have been a collector for. And and it would have been an import-export tax. It would have been goods coming in, goods Leaving tax. So, other other people wanted to come into different regions or districts within uh, Israel or different parts of the known world that was under Roman occupation. Well, they had to pay a tax if they wanted to sell their goods. Or you had individuals fishing the Sea of Galilee. They would catch fish. They wanted to sell those fish. They would have to pay tax. And these taxes were not fair, they were not kind. And they were extremely heavy burdens. One historian recounts this in regards to the tax that was imposed upon Israel. And he says this the modest economy of the country bent and at last broke under the taxes imposed upon it by a luxurious court, that's Rome, and a building program out of proportion to the national wealth. What does all of that mean? Caesar was greedy. And he wanted to build things. He wanted to build beautiful things. He did build beautiful things. And he paid for it on the backs of men and women as they just tried to work a humble job to support their families. And Matthew was this tax collector. One of many. He wasn't the only one. And it's amazing to look at what Matthew records about his own call. If you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew 9 with me. We'll look at what Matthew says about what took place before and after. This event is also recorded in Luke 2, or excuse me, Luke 5, Mark 2. So we have three different accounts that we can compare some details to. Matthew doesn't tell us that this event happened by the sea, but Mark does. What sea would this have been? It would have been the Sea of Galilee. It was the sea where Jesus' ministry hub happened for several months and years. It was the sea that James and John and Peter and Andrew would have fished in. And it's entirely possible that Matthew extorted some of the very men who would become his fellow apostles. Matthew records for us in the ninth chapter of his gospel account what took place. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So Matthew tells us where he was. He's at work. His government supported, backed job, centurion-enabled profession of being able to charge whatever he wanted as long as Caesar got his cut. And he said, that was Jesus said, follow me. And in all three gospel accounts, the response recorded is exactly the same. And he rose and he followed him. In verse 10, we're told that Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Matthew's call of his, or his account of his call is is, is amazing. You see the call of Jesus there on display. Where Matthew is at work, he's at his government job. And Jesus just comes up and says, follow me. And immediately, in an instant, everything this man was known for completely crumbled away and radically changed. Now perhaps there was still some out there that really struggled naturally with who this man once was. But as far as Matthew was concerned, he wasn't known as a tax collector anymore. He wasn't going to any longer live in that way. We're told in some of the lists in regards to Matthew where the disciples and the apostles are listed out that he was the son of Alpheus. Again, as we mentioned last week, some think that he might have been the, the, the brother of James the Lesser. Because James the Lesser is also said to be the son of Elpheus. Now, we have no idea if those are the same Alpheuses or not. But there's a name there, it has a commonality. But within the group of 12 apostles, there's two Simons and two James. So names were, were common, so you can't be 100% sure. But Jesus comes and calls Matthew while he's at work. And this import-export tax business that took place w- was set up and structured in, in a bit of a, 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 a corporate way, if you will, where there were what was called moaks, M-O-K-H-E-S. And there were great mokes, and there were little mokes. Think drug lords and drug dealers. Okay, that's, that's probably one of the best parallels we can maybe come up with. The great mokes were the drug lords. They weren't the ones sitting at the booth. They weren't the ones that were running around distributing the contraband. They were the ones that were just kind of getting everybody on the same page. Everything had to funnel and flow through them. And then the little mokes were the on-the-ground, boots-on-the-street people who would have to be the faces and the names of this enterprise. And what would happen is that the little mokes, which would have been, which would have been Matthew, he'd have been a little moke, He would have been able to charge whatever he wanted for tax as long as the great Moke was able to get his cut of the tax and then as long as Caesar was able to get his cut of the tax. And so you would have started with a baseline of what Caesar wanted and then the great Moke would have said, well, I want a little bit more than that so let's just say it's 25 cents on the dollar, well, All right, so Caesar wants a quarter. The great moak wants a dime. Matthew was obligated then to collect 35 cents, but could charge whatever he wanted. Could charge 40, could charge 50, could charge 60, could do whatever he wanted. And as long as the great moak got his cut, and Caesar got his cut, everybody stayed happy, except those that were paying the tax. So Matthew ends up being one of the faces of this extortion enterprise. And it's just fascinating to consider that given his proximity, that his booth was beside the sea, that it is possible, if not likely or even probable, that he extorted the very men that he would then spend three years of his life and travel with the very men that Jesus would put together into this ragtag band of men, ordinary men that would go and change the world. We see that Matthew leaves everything that he knew. It's interesting that Matthew did not though leave every one that he knew. And look with me back at verse 10. I think some of these details are important as we consider what Matthew was called to do. He was called to follow, and he rose and he followed. And then we see Jesus reclining at table in the house, presumably Matthew's house. We're told in Luke's account that Levi, which was Matthew's other name, made a great feast for him in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Now tax collectors, as I've already begun to share some of the details about how they worked their profession, they were the dregs of Jewish society. They were the lowest of the low on the social scale. They symbolized the very worst of sinners because they had turned their back on their fellow man that Jesus would have saved the tax collector and then made him an, impossible, an apostle was utterly inconceivable in the minds of the Pharisees. One pastor continues saying that tax collectors were viewed as traitors to their people, classified as unclean people. They were barred from the synagogues. They were even forbidden to give testimony in Jewish courts because they were considered to be liars because everything everybody knew about them was that these were dishonest men. And here Jesus is spending time with a whole group of dishonest men and a whole group of other people just known wholesale as sinners. And then the really religious people come in and they begin to ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, it was utterly inconceivable in their mind that Jesus would have anything to do with these people. And his answer to them is, is astounding. He hears it, if not overhears it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, Jesus is He's striking a contrast here, and he's telling these Pharisees that you guys think you have it all together. You don't think you need grace. You don't think you need mercy. You think that everything just is, is, is wrapped around and, and, and bound up in making everything external look as good as it possibly can. And you're contrasted then with this group of individuals who may know very well they're a bit of a hot mess. You've rejected them from being able to come to the synagogue. I mean, there's no, even, there's no formal way for them to even come and commune with the Lord. They know they're sick. They know they're desperate. They know they have need. and You guys think you have it all together. He says, I, I didn't come for those who have no need, but I came for the sick. And he continues, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's a quotation from an Old Testament prophet. It shows up prophets, it shows up several different times in, in, in just kind of slightly different variations of the same type of phrase where God is telling his people, that all you guys are doing in the moment, right now, is you're you're obeying the letter of the law. And yes, you're you're sacrificing and you're giving and you're bringing your your turtle doves and you're tithing your mint and your cumin and you're doing all of those things, but you've completely missed the heart of what I am trying to communicate to you. And you think that because you have all of these external religious things figured out, in a part of your daily lives, that it doesn't really matter what else you do over here. So it doesn't matter how you treat somebody, as long as you gave your tithes and offerings last Sunday. And we can very easily find ourselves slipping and falling into the same type of mentality, that how I live Monday to Saturday doesn't really matter because I went to church on Sunday. I mean, there's even, there's even religious systems that propagate that idea. You just you, you come to church, you, you, you say your things, you, you get, some, get some blessings, and it doesn't matter what you do, and you just come back next week and we'll just kind of rehearse the whole thing over again. And, and that's the idea that's at heart of what Jesus is striking at. And no, it actually does matter. It matters how you treat one another and it actually matters more than the fact that you had a lamb killed in your name for your sins last week it matters a whole lot more that you didn't treat them kindly than you tithed your spices it makes you wonder it it, it makes you wonder what what concept of salvation the pharisees even had and, and I would probably submit to you that they probably didn't have a concept of salvation in the way that Jesus came preaching the good news of salvation. That for the Pharisees, what they were aiming at was external conformity to God's law, that, that your, your actions looked good. And along the way, I've tried to be charitable to this group of individuals. And I think we should be charitable to a certain degree of them. Because I think their intentions were well placed in the beginning. And they began to stray and strafe as it went on. And certainly in their confrontations with Christ. You see they missed something incredibly important about the heart of the gospel. That the gospel is not news that makes good people better people. The gospel is news that makes dead people living people. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that your good deeds are somehow now better deeds. But that you who were dead in your sins have been made alive in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. See the gospel, there's a bad news element to the gospel. And I think the sick people understand, in part, the bad news. The bad news is that there's actually an internal problem with me. That what ails me is not something that's externally creating pressure on my life. The solution to what ails me is not something found inside of me that I need to somehow unlock Quite the opposite is true. That what ails me is actually found deep within. And the solution is what's external. It's the good news that Jesus came to pay the price for my transgressions and sins. And he came to live the perfect life that I was incapable of living. See, the gospel is not... News that makes good people better people. It makes dead people alive people. And it's interesting as we think about Matthew's actions and even what he would later write in his gospel account. And if you' still open to Matthew nine, go forward a few pages to Matthew 13, because Matthew's going to record a parable that Jesus taught. And he's going to record then the interpretation of the parable that Jesus taught. And I know we we talk a lot about the the divine author behind the scriptures. And, And that is absolutely true. God the Holy Spirit divinely inspired his word. But he did so through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God did not grab Matthew's hand and write or scribe what he wanted done. What we understand is, is, as Peter records for us, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, is that God the Holy Spirit was moving in their thoughts and their emotions and their memories and what maybe they even thought was most important to address to pen and reveal the very words he wanted to reveal. Now that's significant because Matthew, in recording this parable in his 13th chapter, begins to explain a little bit some of the actions that he had after Jesus came and said, Follow me. So let's go. It's the parable of the weeds. It's verse 24. We're going to see the parable and then we'll get the explanation a little later. He put another parable before them, saying... This was one of the parables that Roy sat and explained to you with our group while we were in Ireland. Because this is a, it's a significant parable in regards to what his ministry purpose and actions look like. Because the church and the, the word church, the word Bible, the word missionary, all of those things in Dublin are very, very... Uh, they're words that do not at all communicate or engender good feelings. That's probably the best way to say it. You say those words, you're going to get negative responses. This mural was on, there it is. This mural was on the wall of the little cafe. It's called a gaff. The little cafe area in our hostel. It doesn't... Take a long time to see what's really striking about that, and it's not the golfer or Beethoven, it's the angry priest. The conception of church, the conception of 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 holy men, if you will, we're we're kind of flattening out a lot of distinctions here for a moment, is one that's incredibly negative. So the idea that Roy would go in and say, I'm a missionary from the States and I'm here to start a church and I, I want to tell you about Jesus. If he, if he did that and if he used those words, he would have walls immediately rise up and people probably would just turn and walk away. And Roy spent a lot of time walking us through this idea of, of being an enigma, not fitting the pattern or the mold of what these people in Ireland think, Christians are so back to that question that we began with what are you known for what are you known for we have a growing negative stereotype and understanding of the church of the bible of quote-unquote religion in our culture I mean, it, it, it's rapidly racing ahead, full steam. What are we known for? Are we known as men and women who, who are merciful and love. See, Matthew understood some of these things, he writes about some of these things. And here we have the interpretation of this parable. In verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds and of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So there's a seed sower, and that's the son of man. Now that was Jesus' favorite self-identification that he used throughout the four Gospels. So that's him. Jesus is the seed sower. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So here you have these parts of this parable explained. Now, we just need to, for a moment, understand that when Matthew, earlier in chapter 13, gives the parable of the sower, it's it's a lot of the same metaphor. It's very similar language, but Jesus is making two very different points. In the beginning of Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, the seed is actually the gospel message. It's the good news. It's the word. Here later in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us essentially the same type of metaphor, but says, no, the seed is actually the people. So both are true. The the people are placed into the field, which is the world, that that the the seed sower, Jesus himself, places the sons of the kingdom, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, into a mission field. So that they would be gospel seed themselves and share gospel seed. So so both are there. And that's exactly what you see Matthew do. Jesus comes and says, follow me. He gets up, he follows, he leaves everything, and... The only other thing that it appears he knows how to do is get around everybody who he knows, which would have been the very, very lowest, worst people in society, and plant himself squarely, or probably more accurately said, is planted by Jesus in the lives of these people to be gospel seed and to share the word, the gospel seed. We see Matthew demonstrate these things. We've tried to capture some of this in regards to what it means to be a Christ-centered witness by saying that we believe that all followers of Jesus have been placed in a mission field by Jesus to love, serve, and share with others the good news of the gospel. So you and I have been called to speak, but we've been placed where we are as gospel seed in order to speak. Yeah, God may call one of us, all of us, some of us, someday to Africa, but let's not ignore the calling He's given us today. We're to be salt and light for Him right where we already are. That's what you see Matthew do. That's what you see take place in this man's life. That's what he writes about later as he's remembering and putting on to papyrus the the parables of Jesus. Oh yeah, that that makes sense. That Jesus takes his people and he plants them where he wants them to be so that they can be gospel seed. They can be the merciful people and then they can share the gospel seed as i said earlier these two men could not be more different we don't actually know a lot about simon the zealot there's no record of his call we, we have a record of Matthew's call. We know where he was. We know the geographic proximity that he was in. We know what he was doing at the time. We know exactly what he did after. We have none of those details in regards to Simon. He's called Simon the Zealot. So from that, we're able to, 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 to deduce what this man would have been known for. He'd have been known as a dagger man. One of the guys that would have run around with curb-shaped daggers in their robes. And would have been looking for any opportunity available to kill a Roman centurion. So just think for a moment. God's grace on display of these guys. Matthew had sold out his country. Simon wanted nothing more than to kill the Roman centurion's that we're occupying his country. That's what he was known for. Those divides don't get much sharper. I mean, this goes probably way beyond Republican and Democrat. And Jesus takes them. He puts them together in a group of 12. He magnifies His grace in their lives. And He takes what only would have been hatred and enmity and strife and bitterness and He creates brotherly love and harmony and unity. See, I think these men become amazing amazing illustrations of how God's grace in the lives of his people shatters all external distinctions these men were known externally there were things that distinguished them and God's grace shatters it all and i think they learned And it it probably took some time. They learned to love each other. They learned to be unified together. Because there was something that became greater to them. They became known for something else. No longer was Simon known for the guy that ran around and shanked people. He became known as a Christ follower. Simon wasn't, or Matthew wasn't any longer known as a tax collector. He became known as a Christ follower. And these external distinctions, they just melt at the foot of the cross. And they melt when we put our focus and our eyes on Christ. And he becomes the one that we follow. He becomes the one that we are known for. You couldn't have two guys that were further apart with one another. And somehow in in, in God's plan, it's like, yeah, I'm going to take these guys, I'm going to put them together. They're going to have to walk side by side on a road together. They're going to disagree about everything for a long time. And then you know what? They're going to agree about me. They're going to live for me. And they're going to be willing to die for me. Because I'm going to to come and wreck their lives with grace. We see in Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 7, that we're told by the Apostle Paul That God works in our lives and does things by His grace in our lives so that we will be a demonstration of His grace in the heavenly realms. That God is declaring to the angelic and the demonic hosts, hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this hardcore Republican, I'm going to take this hardcore Democrat, and they're going to learn to love each other. I'm going to take this zealot and this traitor, and they're going to learn to love each other. And they did so because they learned to love Jesus. See, these external distinctions, they they crumble and they melt at the foot of the cross. Because that's where we begin to put our eyes and our focus on what matters. Most and what should occupy the position of first priority, God. We pray that you do that in our hearts, in our lives. God, I know I'm 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 prone. To, I'm prone to draw lines based on external distinctions. God, I'm prone. I'm prone to think that way. I'm also prone to not act like Matthew. And be the salt and light that you call me to be. So God, I pray that you'd use use these men and what you've done in their hearts and in their lives and the demonstration of your grace to, to encourage us, but most certainly to, to exhort us to think differently, to have a different focus and heart's affection. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to to focus on your grace and to magnify and marvel at your grace and to have our eyes and focus be on Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen.